Der, der Tim liegt in der Mulchzimmer. It sounds more desperate in German. <laughs> it does sound a little more. Everything sounds more desperate in German. Hey everyone, welcome back to the live drop. I'm speaking with Tim Hall. This segment is going to be one of those Berlinery episodes where I'm trying to figure out what was happening in Berlin while I was there at the end of the Cold War. Uh, Tim's an old friend of mine. We both worked at DEH together, but he had done a long stint as an army analyst in Teufelsburg, which was an NSA listening station built atop of a pile of rubble that was collected after World War II. Tim kind of lets me in on what the whole overall SIGINT mission was in Berlin. Okay, everybody. Welcome to the live drop. This is the Mad Minute. It's January 17th, 9.50 a.m., Pacific time. I'm talking with Timothy B. Hall from Kohlberg, Germany via Skype. Uh, Tim was posted in Berlin at Teufelsburg, then to DEH, Department of Engineering and Housing, where I met him. He's a longtime expatriate, still lives in Germany. Start transmission now. Hey, Tim. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tim Hall, and you're listening to the live drop. Tim, how are you today? Tonight, I'm just doing fine. Tonight, yeah, it is, it is like almost 7 p.m. You finished the pizza already? Yeah. Cool. It doesn't take long. So you're you're in your house. You're in like a special room or something. Yeah, I'm in the uh, bow. It's kind of like a garage inside the house because I'm married and I'm not allowed in the house. Right. We okay. have to stay in the attic, the basement, or in the garage. So if you had a dog, the dog would be in the bow. The dog would be in here with me. The cat's in here with me. I think me. I think Americans call it a mud room. Is that, is that the same? Yeah. Well. <laughs> That makes sense. Tim, where's Tim? In the, in the mudroom. How do you say mudroom in German? Mulchzimmer. Uh, let's go through to get some quick background information from you. Where, where are you from originally, Tim? And I don't call you Tim like I don't know you, but where are you from? Where are you, where, where are you from? <laughs> I'm from Melbourne, Melbourne, Florida. Yeah, so you're from Florida, Melbourne, Florida. What what brought you into the armed forces? What What, what forces brought you into the armed forces? 1974, with all the gas lines, no jobs, I graduated high school, didn't have the money or the grades for college, so mm -hmm. I went in the military. Why Air Force? I was in the Army, actually. I was in the Army because I had taken junior ROTC in high school, and I was able to come in as an E3. I didn't have to learn anything. Basic training, I knew all the ranks, I knew drill and ceremonies, I knew how to fire the, M the M14. Yeah, base, uh, I was a wrestler in high school, so even the physical aspect of basic training, it was all very, very easy. If I'd have joined another service, I would have had to learn all that stuff. What drew you to your, your ultimately your, your specialty, which was, I think, communications or something, what was it? Yeah, I was in the Army Security Agency, signal operations. I took the battery of tests, I forget what they're called, and then the recruiter thought, well... This guy will last about a day in infantry. I better get him a safer job. And then, so I took a, uh, a Morse test, a Morse code test, and I passed it. And they said, we can guarantee you this MOS when you finish basic if, if you come in. And, and I thought, well, how many ASA people got killed in Vietnam? And they said, oh, about two. Well, how did they get killed? Oh, they fell off their bar stool. I said, sign me up. What's, a, what's ASA again? Army Security? The Army, the Army Security Agency. It's now called the Intelligence and Security Command. And it's just, it's just classified signal operations. Right. We intercepted Morse communications. And uh, my specialty, we figured out where the transmitters were. How do you figure out where a transmitter is? triangulation of signals. You had different outstations. I was fortunate in the Army. A lot of places I never wore a uniform. I worked in 12-man detachments, 20-man detachments, lived on the economy. There was no concern. That's what I was doing in Chiang Mai. Basically, your field station has a this huge antenna array, and they intercept operations, and they send the signals out to us, and we track them by Morse. Everybody's on the same page, and you send your line of bearing, a lob, and uh, it's triangulated. And within a few meters, they know exactly where the transmitter is coming from. How do they get a line of base? 
How do they get a lob? Like, what kind of technology? I mean, it just seems like you put in a radio station, turn on the radio, you have no idea where these are com- these signals are coming from. No, you have an you have an you have an antenna array. Right. Picks up the signals, magnifies the signals, and then uh, when they're copying the Morse, when the when the main field station is copying, you're listening, and and so you're fiddling. You tune your tran- your radio to the same frequency as the field station, and when you find a guy sending what they're putting out over the teletype, you know that's the correct guy, and you have an oscilloscope, and it positions where he's at, and it has a list of degrees, and you just send that number back. This all happens very, very quickly. You do four or 500 missions a day. You're, you're constantly doing this all day long. And, uh, and so you send the numbers back. And then when I was in uh, the Far East, we did every by hand. We triculated on a, a plotting board and things like that. Later on, when I worked at NSA, computers did that stuff. And then you would know who the guy was after a while because you can recognize, like when we send Morse code, it's like when we talk. We all have our distinguishing characteristics, and you can figure out who the guy is. We were tracking the Soviet, the Spetsnaz, the Soviet Special Forces guys. So this was once you got into, um, this is once you were, so you first you were in Chiang Mai. I want to talk about mm-hmm. the Spetsnaz guys, but first you were in Chiang Mai, and then you were reassigned to Berlin? No, from uh, Thailand, I went to NSA. Where, where did you work for the NSA? At Fort Meade, Maryland. In, in there, I just ran test beds. Uh, they had new equipment, making us obsolete. I would have a a team that would go out and do things, and then their equipment would do things, and and then they would put the test together and decide if where we would shut down field stations and put remote equipment. And then I went to Germany to. Uh, so this was in the sev- this was in the seventies. They developed equipment where they didn't really yeah. need these stations where people like you were out in Chiang Mai falling off a bar stool. That's when, it, that's when it all started. There was a huge technology advancement in the 70s, mm-hmm. in the latter part of the 70s, electronically. And then in the 80s, I was in Germany in Augsburg and went to the remote site in Schleswig. Mm-hmm. From there, I went to Ventil Farms in Virginia, which was a TAC unit. And we would fly around occasionally on a... We, I was a detachment commander. And the detachment, we'd be deployed in, in different places, and uh, we'd work for the DEA and people like that, all intercepting where, communications. Where would you go? Like, where, where, what kind of missions would you uh, have? You said uh, Ventil Farms? Usually, to, usually, yeah, Ventil Farms, Virginia. That's been closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually to places on the coast where the DEA would want us to monitor seagoing vessels. Mm-hmm. Sometimes immigration would... We'd go out there on missions for them. A lot of times we didn't know who we were doing things for. We were just doing them because we were sent out to do it. Were you working for the NSA at the time, or was this with the Air Force? Or how, did, how did that work? I was still in the Army when I worked at NSA. Oh, you're still at the Army. Okay. Yeah. And, well, so you, well, you did a lot of stuff, Tim. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't covered this before in our, our long coffee conversations. Yeah. You know, if... If I hadn't drank so much and smoked so much weed, I could probably remember it all much better. But ASA was filled, filled with alcoholics. Really? Why do you think that was? Because the same personality traits that make you want to be a Tinker Tailor soldier spy, Mm -hmm. those same delusional traits you find among a lot of alcoholics. And it's basically people that exceed. It's basically people having a good time that exceed having a good time. Right. I think it also might have something to do with authenticity. Um, by, the, by that, I mean ha- having having like an alternate sort of reality that you can fall back on or having having secrets is always sort of, I mean, for me, it's always been a sort of unhealthy, <laughs> unhealthy state of mind. That, that could very well be uh, because you never knew, you never knew what your work what it was really doing. Later on, I figured out we were basically helping corporate America. Really? That's, that's what intelligence does. Uh, that's what NSA does. That's their primary mission. It has shit all to do with defense. We have missiles. We have special forces. That's enough to defend ourselves. The, the information we collect is 
is for corporate America, um, for the elite rich. Oh, my God. Now it's the same thing. You went – let me just go, go a little more through the checklist of things you did. Then so you – okay, you're working for the ASA. Um, you know, you're working for the NSA. You, you, you go to Germany. Then you come back and you work um, – I mean, I think you – for Vental, in Vental Farms, Virginia, I guess? Right. And why the transition from Army to Air Force? No, I was never in the Air Force. Oh, so you're always in the Army the whole time. Okay. I just acted like where did I, I was get in that? You seem like an Air Force guy. <laughs> I just acted because I never polished my boots How or anything. Did you pull that? I, I just acted like an Air Force guy. He Always did. had my hands in my pockets, you know, Air Force gloves. He did, yeah. I did. Um, I did a, You know, I did a spot in that movie Zero Dark Thirty. Right, Catherine Hardwick was the director. She did the. I don't know the movie where the guys trying to get the IEDs out of the ground. And there's a scene at the very end where I'm at the end. I'm in this plane. I'm playing a C-130 pilot. I do this scene with oh, this. Cool. I do the scene with the star of the show. Really quick scene. I mean, they you know turn the turbines up. You could hardly hear me or see me. But I do the scene. And after the first take, the director sends a messenger up to me. Uh, you know, they run across the tarmac. The sun is setting. They walk up the walk up the ramp into the plane and talk to me. He said, uh, the director wants to know if you can act like more military. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought, and, you know, at, at one, at one hand it was, it, it, for me, it was like a career milestone because I'd been out of the army. Wait long. a minute. Didn't, didn't they ask you that at West Point also? Yeah, they probably did. <laughs> I said, you know, I've been getting that. I've really been getting that for a long time. <laughs> it's not the first time I've heard this. But I also wanted to say, well, the guy was in the Air Force, so I had to tone it down a little bit, but what can you do? So you're in the Army the whole time. You're working for the NSA, the ASA. I think a lot of our listeners, some at this point, they probably know a little bit about what this is. But So essentially, you're picking up, communi- picking up remote communications. And was it always Morse code, or was it voice as well, or, or some type of encoded transmission? Uh, I was responsible for the Morse part. There were people that did voice. And there were analysts that, that analyzed the voice traffic, and I had analysts that did the uh, Morse traffic. And like I said, it was it was pretty phenomenal what we did. Someone would come up transmitting, and we'd say, oh, that's SO7, or that's GYX. And it would be those people. Oh, wow. And how you learned that, there in Chicksands, England, which was also an Intel base, they had a school, Signal Search and Development. And you would learn who was sending from the Middle East, who was sending from Asia, who was sending from Russia. When I first started that course, I thought, I'm never going to make it through here. I'm not going to figure that shit out. But at the end of the six weeks, you figure it out. It, you just somehow it just gets in, the, in your brain and, and you figure it out. So we're really accurate. You know, the, in Berlin, I'll, I'll speak about Berlin because that was my, my last duty station. The East Germans and the Soviets never surprised us with an exercise or a missile movement. Uh, if you remember the days in Germany when we had missiles mm-hmm. and they were mobile. Mm-hmm. But we knew where, where every truck with explosives was parked on the Autobahn in West Germany. We got all that through the communications because you can't run an op without talking about it. And how did the, they talk about it? For, were, they, were they actually using Morse humans, code? Were they using Morse code or were they just using voice? They would use both, and like I said, but I would only handle the Morse portion. Mm-hmm. And the reason you use Morse is in the event of a nuclear war, you know, where you get underneath your desk and you're protected, or you go out in the hallway, face the wall, and put your coat over yourself, mm-hmm. Morse code will still fly through the air. You don't need, you don't need uh, the radio waves for that. Oh, you mean it uh, could still fly across the teletype lines or whatever they were? Exactly. And so all the military used it. We used it. We didn't just intercept Morse code. We could all send Morse code. And uh, Morse code is a very fast, effective way to talk. You, you, you could send a hundred group message in, in second. What does that mean, a hundred group? Everybody uses the alphabet, E, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. A group, and it's measuring groups per minute, is five characters. And so when you get out of school, you're hammer fisting out maybe 18 groups per minute. That's that's really slow. But by the time you've been in the field for a couple of years, and then people like me that have been doing it almost 10 years, you're you're flying along at 25, 30 GPM. 
but it's not all clear. You have static, you have atmospherics interfering, but you just tune into it. It just becomes a, a language. So how fast is that in normal speak? Like how, like you said, 90 groups per minute or 60 groups per minute? I mean, how- oh, no, 90 groups per minute. Nobody could do that. I think some of the best could probably do 30 groups. Your average would probably send in groups per minute. We abbreviated it GPM. So an, an average, a good op could send about 24 GPM. You don't really want to go faster than that because nobody could copy it. Because obviously, for example, the letter A is alpha. And in Morse code, it would be a, a dot and a dash, which in Morse code, we call a dit and a da. A dit would be a dot and a da would be a dash. And so alpha would be da da. Da da. Uh, yeah. So you could and actually so you talk to somebody the, going da 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 But you're doing it with a key. And so you can get really, really fast. And most people can send faster than they can copy because when you're sending, you're reading what you're sending or it's in your mind. So you're just flying along. But when you copy, you always have to copy behind. You're like, you start out like five characters behind and the guys that can copy really fast code, they would sometimes be 10, 15 groups per minute behind what the guy was actually sending. So that whole memory thing, that, that short memory was was really built up among all the ops. They really had that down. Was it a form of translation? We weren't uber military because we had no long-term memory. We just had that short-term memory. <laughs> you, could only, the only, you could only remember things happening within the last 20, 20 minutes. Oh, 20 seconds. 20 seconds. After that, you just repeated. Twenty the minutes suit. is long-term memory. Oh man! So, would it, was it? Would it be similar to translating something? Like if you're translating while someone is talking, like the Nuremberg trials or something like that, where they have the headphones it's, on and they're just talking, or the UN. It's just it's just a different language, but it's an international language because they all use the American alphabet. Wow! So, how would you say hello in Morse code? Oh, if I can remember. In did and did das and did 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 did. did. Da 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 da. <laughs> there you it's go. Anything I can remember. Wow, and that's but, pretty uh, fast. H would be four dits or four dots. Did it did it. And then E is the single dit, so it, it would be five dits. Did it did it did. And then L is da da did it. Da da did. And then O is da da da. Da da da. Do you take a break? How do you know when one letter ends and one letter starts? There's a there's a nanosecond break in between because you're communicating, you're talking. So like when you're writing, you don't want to write a run on sentence. So it's like you a, have punctuation. So, so you don't like really a, have punctuation, but you have pauses. So it's like a slight little, like a musical, like a musical, like you're reading music or something, a slight little, whatever you call it, a space or a rest or a breath. Probably not even that long. I mean, it's a rhythm. It's like one, two, three, da, da, da. You know, a lot of people flunk out of the school. They don't make it. The The smarter you are, the chances of you dropping out are really high. It's people with less than a mediocre intelligence that seem to make it through the school. What, do, what other skills do you, did you find the people that, that could do Morse code? What, what are the things did you find that those people are naturally adept at? Well, that's interesting because I retired from a 30-year career in civil engineering One of my friends is the department head of the psychology department at Georgia Southwestern University. He's got his Ph.D. in psychology. And then other people work at the Amazon warehouse. It's all over the map. Right. And a lot of them were lifers and just retired and then went to work for the post office. You know how the Army works. Those tests don't mean a whole lot. They put you where they need you when you're at the recruiting station. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty, pretty diverse group. But the thing is, we worked all the time, 24-7, a lot of shift work. We were always live mission. We never were practicing or playing. Yeah, it was interesting. So there's never, there's never, oh, this is just a, you're always listening to live transmissions that were going on. It wasn't training exercises or. Yeah, like, uh, for example, we knew before it made the news, we knew for years that a lot of the. East German athletes were actually 
Soviet special purpose officers. What do you mean by special purpose officers? We kind of knew things before the news actually put it out there on the media. But of course, you couldn't talk about any of that stuff. You would you would get in trouble for that. And and so everybody that was we did a lot of goofing off, but we took our job very serious. We never, no matter how drunk we got, we never talked about work outside the outside the the secure area. Sure. So this was in. Let's just talk about Berlin specifically. Like you got to you worked in Schles, a remote sign station in Schleswig, and then you went to yeah. Berlin. And what year did you get there? I think eighty three. Eighty three. Eighty three to. So were you there during um Abel Archer all that when all that was going on? It was an exercise that it was kind of like a reforger exercise that the Americans had, but the the East Germans and the Russians were concerned that it was some kind of actual actual attack. I'm not really sure because I lived there a long time. I lived there for almost eight years after the fact uh, as a civilian working at the DEH. And, of course, I still got AFN and everything. So sometimes it's hard to separate what happened when I was in the military there and what happened when I was a civilian there. Right. But you got there in 83, but I wanted to hear what you said about the athletes. You said they they had... I mean, they were in the Stasi, they, had intelli- they were intelligence officers, the athletes, what were they? Quite a few of the athletes were Soviet special purpose forces officers. East German and or that Soviet? Was the way, the Soviet. The only, the, only Soviets were Spetsnaz. The, the only way you can identify those fuckers was through communications. Because as soon as they went someplace, they changed their uniform. If they... If the, and, they would go someplace to do an operation, let's say it was an artillery base or a missile base, then they would wear the uniform of the Soviet soldiers or the East German soldiers at that missile base. It was really hard to get a visual on these guys, but you could always identify them through their communications because they had to communicate every day, and they did it on air, and we would catch them. I mean just massive amounts of people sitting in front of radio transmitters copying everything that came across because they weren't stupid. They did the same thing and they would put up their red herrings just like we would. Mm -hmm. And that's where the analysts would come in. It was their job to decipher all that stuff and come up with, with the scenario. So you were specifically in charge of listening to Spetsnaz groups and how would how would you know how would you know that it's coming from Spetsnaz or how would you know that it's coming from these or were you listening and calling for their information the way they sent their code you could tell that it was Spetsnaz yeah because this is what a lot of people have to remember everything just to throw in the Spetsnaz is the it's sort it's kind of like the the uh the Soviets Delta Force or Special Forces or Rangers they're the Green Berets of, yeah. of the Russian army. They, they speak languages. They do halo jumps. You know, they're the badasses. They're, they're like and how many the were there? American Special Forces. And how many were there in Berlin at the, t- at, at the time or in that area? Was there a specific unit or were they just divided up into smaller detachments? No, they're, they're not units. There is no Spetsnaz unit. There's no Spetsnaz Academy. They go to the equivalent of West Point, the GRU Academy, Right, and then when they leave the GRU Academy, then they they get split up just like our army officers, and uh, but there 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 isn't a platoon of Spetsnaz. There's there's not a company of Spetsnaz. They're just individual soldiers with skills, and okay. they they infiltrate other units. They're working with other units, and the other units. Uh, they take on the uniform of the other units because they don't even want the other units to know they're Spetsnaz. Oh wow! So they they all work individually like that. The 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 Spetsnaz, the French Foreign Legion, and the Polish Foreign Legion are the three military that just would scare the shit out of me, and I would not want to go to war against. Much like the American Army, mm-hmm. uh, the, those the regular Russian Army, that's not a big deal. But the Spetsnaz, what was it about them that really particularly scared you? Well, they're just so they're just so competent and they're so loyal to the motherland. I mean, you're not going to get a, a Spetsnaz officer walking across the line and giving himself up. I mean, right. they're not going to do that. 
they really believed in in Mother Russia, and they they were just badasses. They, uh, you know, ammunition for them was kind of like, oh, it's a bonus, or you know, but an entrenching tool was just as good for them as a weapon. They they were truly badass. And how could you glean this stuff just from listening to da 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 da? Well, I was the supervisor. When the analysts would analyze stuff before they sent it up, they would have to explain it to me Mm -hmm. because you got to have a voice of sanity somewhere. And then you have years and years. Let me interrupt you for just a second. You were a supervisor of uh, like a signal intelligence group. This is in in Teufelsburg. And was it yeah. just signal intelligence, or was it was it was a voice intel was it voice information they no, were getting as well? No, I was only well? in charge. I was only in charge of a group of Morse interceptors. Okay. And uh, radio direction finders. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything to do with the uh, voice. So yeah, back to the original question. I guess how how would you glean, how would you glean this stuff when they were giving you information or briefing you about them? Just. Historical accounts, analysts would put things together and they would paint a picture and and uh, we would believe what they told us. I mean, no, I didn't have personal accounts where I crawled under the wire and witnessed it with my own eyes. No, none of that. But what would be, what would be a uh, typical account from an analyst that would come into you as, as a supervisor that you would have to sort of make sense of before you send it up? Mostly movements, movements of where units were at and what they were doing. How many of them were there? Uh, just positioning of the Soviet bloc military. Mm-hmm. And how did you know that they were? Um, how did you know that they were um, Spetsnaz? By the way, they would send. They would have certain call signs, and and you have to understand about the intelligence community. Everybody just does a little tiny portion. It's when you put everything together that you can get the accounts and that paint the picture of what these guys are like. Like Major Nichols, he used to drive around and actually go into East Germany before he got shot. You're talking about Major Arthur Nicholson, who was shot in 1985 close to a, close to a Soviet yeah. tanker base. Mm-hmm. And it was people like him that could actually give eyewitness accounts. But when you put, when you feed all this collection of stuff, eyewitness accounts, Morse, voice. There's these people that put it all together. And then you, you have people that are in the Russian army or, or in the Stasi or in the East German army that are agents. They're selling information to the Americans. So you get, so it's everything together. That they how, would come all up the, with. how would all this stuff come together? Did they just have a meeting and sit around a table <laughs> no, it's just a 24 – in the later days, it was computers. All the information fed into computers, and computers would figure things out. But who was in charge? Uh, who was in charge? Who's collecting information from, for example, Major Nicholson with the you know Soviet military liaison mission and who was getting information from the Stasi from counterintelligence or intelligence and then signals? Who, who was kind of putting it all together to make sense of it, at least in Berlin? There's a, there's a staff. The, the field station was run by a GS-14 civilian and a colonel, an 06. And they have a staff and, uh, of civilians and officers and the higher enlisted. And they sit around and, and uh, come up with stuff. But I have to tell you something very interesting. I don't know if you remember uh, Chief Warrant Officer Hall. No relation to me. Oh, James Hall. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the Turk. As long as he, and the Turk as, long as well. As, yeah, the the guy running the the auto shop at right. Andrew Barracks. He's talking about James James Hall, who was um, convicted in 1986, I think. Uh, you know, for selling secrets to the KGB and the Stasi. But go ahead. Well, what he was selling wasn't secrets. He was selling our our crypto cards. Whenever we sent communications out of the field station, it would be encrypted. And you would change your crypto cards every day and the codes so that whatever you sent out via teletype, that was back in those days, teletype was, this is really funny. Teletype 
teletype machine was the most one of the most modern conveyances of signal and so, so you would type things in clear text on a teletype it would go out and it would be encrypted and when it got on the other end it would be deciphered and spit out in clear text well what hall was selling was those codes so basically everything that came out of that field in other words the russians beat us they did a better job than us everything that came out of that field station electronically the soviets were getting in clear text because hall was giving them the codes every day and that's why he got life oh so he was he wasn't just giving information he was saying hey here's a figured it out they should have figured it out long before they did because field station berlin always won the award for the best field station with the results that they got and the reason was the soviets were giving us stuff they they were giving us stuff making us look good because they wanted us to stick around there because they everything we collected they were getting back so they in my opinion the russians beat us in berlin as far as intel goes simply because of what hall did so it was a remote and he list. did it just for the money that's what's amazing right he wasn't blackmailed he didn't it wasn't a honey trap you know, there was no girl involved. He just wanted that money. I mean, he was he there the same time you were? Did he spend any money uh, on any? He didn't spend his money on anything? Did he have a new car or what? I'm not sure how they caught him. They they actually caught him, though, with money in the trunk. So they had been, oh, I know how they talk, caught him. They they suspected the guy at the auto shop, the Turk, the Turk for some yeah. reason. And they started watching him. And it's like anything else. The perfect murderer is where you're not a suspect. You get away with it every time. You yeah. can only be caught if you're suspected and people start watching you. And that's what happened. And then, so they knew he had that they that he had to have a field station contact contact. And and so he was caught rather easily. But he was caught very late in the game. He did some serious damage. Uh, but but then again, no nuclear missiles were launched. Everybody gave up. So. At the end, he didn't really do any real damage. It's funny. I talked when, to um, I talked to the uh, yeah this professor this Dmitry Trenner. I was talking to you about. He worked for the Soviet U.S. military as own mission, and now he's I mean he's a you know professor. He's a doctorate. He works for one of their you know sort of more progressive political think tanks over there. And I said, why do you think everything sort of worked in Berlin in that there, it, in that it didn't spark a world war? And he said, I think it was because we could all see what we were all doing. Yeah, that's the consensus. <laughs> it wasn't this. It, they, were, they weren't making decisions based on on false info. Everybody could see what everybody was doing. Like they were tapping into this. We were watching them. They were watching us watch them. But, but yeah, we didn't have to force anyone's hand at any point. That was the key. Uh, much the same reason a lot of nuclear scientists gave up nuclear secrets to Russia because they wanted everybody to have them not just one group. And I agree with that, Professor. Uh, I, I always thought that. Everybody knew what everybody was up to. Everything was in, within tolerance. Uh, and the only time you really have to go to war is if you're not sure what the guy has, but you're not willing to wait around to find out. And he won't tell you. Did you... Um, but to go back just a little bit, what does that, what does that feel like though? When you, I mean, you did all this, you said 400 missions or transmissions a day, you know, you're working in Teufelsburg for, you know, for, for three years, um, listening to the Spetsnats and movements and their requests for supplies or whatever it is they do. And then you find out that it was all went to the Soviets. I mean, how does that, how does that feel? I never gave it much thought. Because, like I said, uh, you know, I'm trying to trace memory, and I can remember things that happened, but I can't remember how I thought back then, if it makes any sense. Well, how does it feel now, though? Uh, I, 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 I would just be making it up. It, it, I'd just be connecting the dots in, any, in a made-up fashion. Yeah, I don't really 
I don't really know. I never gave it much thought. Like I said, I, I realize now we were probably working more for corporate America and corporate international more than we were for, for the military. Basically, I was just happy to have a job. <laughs> <laughs> so the transmission, but Berlin wasn't a bad place to, to, to be stationed. I, I have to admit that. Oh, Berlin was great. Free buses, free U-Bahn. Uh, you didn't have to pay the the luxury tax, no Mavich Voya. It was great. Oh, the U-Bahn was it's, free. I still can't that get used. Whenever I go, wall come down, just really fucked everything up. <laughs> I still get on the U-Bahn. I'm like, wait, a minute, we got to pay for this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, what, uh, what was? But I wanted to, to throw ask a little bit about the um you know, this this social life. Like uh, the guys that worked at Teufelsburg, it's like th they worked at Teufelsburg and you know, they never really talked about what they did. But was there like um, I, I wanted? Was there like an active counterintelligence? movement that, that you were aware of that people were trying to get information from you and how and how did they sort of prepare you for that no no i know for a fact they never did because we were signal intelligence and uh so we didn't we didn't really have anything of value worth them exposing themselves now i'm sure the american special forces and you're guys, talking you're talking about stasi or yeah, exposing themselves see, a Stasi or a Russian agent, they would, they would willingly try to get their hands on an American Special Forces guy, for example, in Berlin. And you mm -hmm. never knew who those guys were. You're talking about Detachment A, most likely. Yeah. Right. It, because some of them were uniforms. Some of them didn't. They all claimed they were cooks. <laughs> and. and right. They, they would risk exposure trying to get one of those guys to work for them. But they, at, at low-level people like us, they would certainly hang out in the bars we hung out. They would, they would work in the whorehouses that we would hang out. And they would get information because drunken people say shit. But there was never any real... I mean, Warren Officer Hall was in, in, in a particular juicy position in that he was handling the encryption. Mm -hmm. That's where he worked at. Yes, they'd love to get their hands on a guy like him, and they did. <clears throat> but the rest of us just copying Morse code, we're just a bunch of monkeys banging away at typewriters. And it's it's not worth them exposing themselves or, or uh, the information we could give them wasn't... You know, I used to have young soldiers work for me saying... Well, if the Russians come over here, we're safe because we know secrets. <laughs> and I said, can you outrun a bullet? Because that's about how safe you are. You don't know anything. I don't know anything. You damn sure don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I listen to talking to some people. In 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 the event that there was a like a an attack on Berlin, the Stasi or the um, the East German Army was was going to be left responsible for taking the American sector. Well, we wouldn't really stand a chance because it's really difficult to fight with your back against a wall, and then a we're encircled by a wall, and uh, it's like God. Why did they even issue live ammo to us? That was a waste of money. That's just going to make them more I, angry, isn't it? <laughs> that was just that was yeah. so delusional. Those soldiers on, at McNair. Yeah. What was what was the plan at, at Teufelsburg? Did you have a plan at Teufelsburg in case? Um, You're going to love this, and I know it to be true. Oh, demolitions, please. We did a fire upgrade, and they put in a halogen system, and the halogen system wasn't there to fight fire. The halogen system was to kill everybody in that fucking building in the event that the Soviets came over. And they wow. were doing it as a mercy because the building was also rigged for explosives. And so they would quietly kill us, gasping like fish, and then after we were dead, the building would blow up and burn. Okay. Um, next question. All because <laughs> Sam Walmart wow. wanted to know if he could put a Walmart in Berlin or not. Who did? I said all of that just so Sam Wal Walton would know if he could put a Walmart up in Berlin or not. So what were you talking Corporate. about the halogen system? What was the system called? A how, it's a halogen system, and what it does is it takes the oxygen out of the air so fire can't burn. Right. And cover story was we have all this expensive equipment here, 
if there's a fire, if we put it out with sprinklers, it's going to ruin everything. But if we right. put the fire out with halogen, all the equipment stays nice and safe and this and that. So uh, did so you work on this program when you were at DH? Because I remember I went to the – remember you guys sent me to the, the, the fire training school and um, the fire construction school in Heidelberg? <laughs> me and a bunch of German construction guys. Um, yeah, but they did, I don't remember them teaching us about the halogen system. That was a special job order contract. How did you know about that? Right, and, and, and don't get me wrong. The halogen system is, is an approved system for fighting fires, but it's generally used in unoccupied areas. Like, say, for example, you had, you had a, a, a boiler room. With Bank just of one computers or, or something. And, mm-hmm. and just one or two people on the floor. And in the event of a fire, the alarm would sound, you get the fuck out, then the halogen's released. But you don't put a halogen system where there's just thousands of people fucking running around. Uh, there's only one reason to put a system in like that, and that's to get rid of everybody. Because y- y- you have to believe the generals in Berlin, they also knew that if the Soviets came over that wall, there is fuck all they could do about it. Absolutely. We couldn't even run away, so we were we were uh, cannon fodder. How did you know about this halogen system? Uh, I was there when they installed it, and I noticed they they were installing it all over the fucking place. What's it look and like? And it's like, oh, they don't want to miss any of us. They're canisters, and it. I'm I'm not sure the the mechanics involved in it, but they released something that that takes the oxygen out of the air and fire needs that oxygen to burn cluster bombs. They put it all over. They installed that all over the building. And we used to joke about it. Really? Yeah. And then you get some crazy fucker saying, man, if I could set that goddamn thing off on my last day, (laughs) it's kind of dark. Why do they have so many halogen containers in the cafeteria? I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah, God, that is shocking. But there's also rumors that, of course, the you know the Detachment A, the Americans' version of Spetsnaz, were they had a, they had a plan for the Teufelsburg soldiers as well. I it was just it was just a rumor, wasn't it? I I I think back in those days, there's a naivety that doesn't exist today, uh, except maybe maybe a few Trump voters, maybe. Mm-hmm. But the the rah 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 around rally round the flag boys, uh, that was still alive and well then. I, I don't think that people have information now that they can get because uh, you can't look at porn all day on the internet. By accident, you're going to have to read a white paper or an article or something. Mm-hmm. We're just more informed now, and we realize we're just largely pawns. But back then, we didn't think that way. We thought we were heroes. We we thought we were keeping the Soviets at bay. Uh, we're winning the Cold War, and uh, that's all bullshit. We're just pawns. Uh, but it was a good gig for me because I was sitting in a nice air-conditioned building instead of running around with an M16 and a rucksack around the wall like those guys in McNair had to do, or Doughboy City. Yeah. So after your stint at Teufelsburg, you discharged from the army. I think we talked about it before you worked. Yeah, kind of a variety of jobs. And then we both ended up working together at the Department of Engineering Housing. Like I came back from the Gulf War. Yeah. I didn't want to be in the, <laughs> I didn't want to I didn't want to go out in the in the in the woods and shoot and pretend to shoot people. So I was sent to a small unit called the Job Order Contracting Team, which which was basically like um I mean maybe you can Say say what that was. Oh, it was just a team from Engineering Plants and Services Division that was in charge of projects that individually were less than a million apiece. Didn't you have a project where you, you had, like at the swimming pool or something at Andrews? I can't remember that. I had, um, my projects was the bowling alley. There was the McNair basketball gym. Teufel's. I think Teufelsburg, I had a job fixing. It was like a drainage problem. It wasn't anything very high speed. I mean, there's all you think of all this equipment. It's like, yeah, I worked at Teufelsburg. What did you do? I replaced a um, 
like a coupling on a, on a sewer line outside of the cafeteria or something like that. But the other job that I had was the, um, it was a barracks on Andrews, and Andrews barracks. And after I kind of looked it up later, I found out that, wait, this was the, this, these were the, the detach, I think these might've been the detachment A barracks. I mean, they were empty pretty much, except for, I think CID had some guys there. I remember there was a flood and I thought, oh, this, their uniforms are, are ruined, but these guys, all their, they hell had just, civilian clothes they had like one uniform and a bunch of civilian clothes so i think they were cid guys but that was the job that i had at andrews you know i love that job in fact had the wall not come down i would i would have retired from that job i wouldn't even have tried for a promotion anywhere i love that job wasn't that great you I could really start a project it. and finish it in a, within the year not only that starbuck he didn't give a shit what we were doing as long as we were doing it right pat chilton was a great chief she actually got she she became a DEH in the states, the director, and she got director of the year. It was just it was great. And Klaus, Jesus Christ, he didn't care what we did as long as we performed. It, it was a great job. I was and there was Klaus from when C- I left there Klaus to go from for Siemens. The, Klaus from Siemens, right? When I when I left Rolf, there, Rolf from to, Siemens. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I remember Rolf. God, his English. <laughs> but uh, when I left there and went to Frankfurt to go work for the Corps of Engineers, I really missed Berlin. Uh, and the good thing is that section we worked at, it was the last section at the DH. They stayed alive. Those guys kept their jobs till the bitter end. And that was a good feeling. But we did a lot of good work. But I enjoyed it. Yeah, that was fun. Getting paid, getting paid to drive around Berlin and occasionally do a little work. It was great. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was a whole year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it was usually usually Army Con, big big projects, government projects, They that you need to bid on them, right? And they have several companies that bid in. But this was a, this was a situation where Siemens was our contractor. I mean, they'd, they'd agreed right. to, they, they'd agreed to, what was it? It was a, it, they still bid. It was, the jock was only a, uh, three-year contract after three years it went out for rebid and uh so it was a bid contract but because because our projects were less than a million i I think the harnack house was the only thing that went over i think that was like 1.6 million or something uh but because of that oh and our funding came directly out of bond because the u.s military in berlin was funded by the german government as opposed to West Germany, it was not. So we had like a $10 million budget in our jock section, which was phenomenal. I, I never saw money like that again when, once I left. Uh, it w- I always had to write these elaborate reports for funding, like, like a scientist has to write, write a paper to get his section funded. But in Berlin, we just got that $10 million every year, and... Starbuck told us what he wanted to do with it, and that's what we did. So what do you think was valuable information at the Directorate of Engineering and Housing for, say, the, the Stasi? Location of arms rooms, location mm-hmm. of ammunition dumps, location of secret helipads, landing runways, mm-hmm. tactical runways, uh, road construction, bridges, and Definitely the uh, the higher up buildings, the headquarters and things like that. They would love to get their hands on a set of floor plans, for example. Just floor plans and maps and installation diagrams. Yeah, yeah. A sewer system that would be good as gold for them. Yeah, there. I'm sure we had people working there that were that were on the payroll. It it'd be almost an impossibility that there wouldn't be. Yeah. Why? Well, they said back in the heyday, every fourth person on the street was telling secrets one way or the other, either intentionally or getting drunk and mouthing off. In the American sector? Just in the American sector? American, French, British. And and it makes sense. It would be so easy. It was so easy for the East Germans to infiltrate West Berlin. Now, it'd be a little harder for, for a Russian 
show up working at the kebab stand at Krumalanka Uban or something, right? Yeah. Everybody was immediately uh, suspicious. Jobs like engineering jobs, architect jobs, the hospital. I'm sure the hospital employed East German doctors, and we didn't realize it. So were there any people that you sort of knew that, uh, I got a feeling this person has to be, or you you just got a sense of it that this person might be either selling information or looking for it? No, we were pretty much trained to, to that when people would ask certain questions, and, and this training was always repeated. It's, it's not like you learn it and forget it. it. It's constantly quarterly pounded in your skull. And you are told when, when this happens, you need to inform someone. And, and uh, because if you don't, and that person turns out to be an agent, you could actually, like, everything was always a threat with the Americans. Sure. The, the American army, it was never the carrot. It was always the stick for enlisted people. For officers, mm-hmm. I don't know. But but we never got a carrot. We didn't even know what a carrot was. It was always the stick. And it was do it or else. So for sure, you knew what to look for. And no, it never happened to me. Nobody ever passed the litmus test that I felt I would have to go and say, hey, this guy came to me and wanted this. Uh, that never happened to me. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, in, who do you, I'm just but I do know, I, I, to, to go back to your question before I lose this thought, I did have soldiers that they were ugly and their girlfriends were beautiful. They were so beautiful that when they got to the States, she probably left him at the airport <laughs> to file for divorce. Those were probably agents right. on some type of payroll. Oh, that's funny. That's true. Like if a guy but showed up, if a guy if, showed up and she was if, just a little too. Mark, Mark, if you're a spec four and back then a spec four made $650, $700 a month and you have a beautiful girlfriend that that's just not in the natural order of things unless you had like a 10 inch dick. And there's not too many of those, you know, like Ron Jeremy, there's not too many of those guys running around. You know what I always thought was a little strange was the German American Freundschaft. And they used to have the, <laughs> that, that just smelled like, and I mean, I didn't really get I had your basic opsec, you know, what do they call it? There was like a, Special special briefing we got at quarterly, like look for this, look for that. It wasn't OPSEC, it was another, I don't know, it's a division of like the 766, the military ID, they had a whole section for it. But um, I always remember those, they had the German-American Freundschaft parties. You would see them at the Harnick House, and they would just be these bleach blondes. You know, just staring, sitting around a table with this vacant look. Like, they don't care about America. Smoking cigarette. (laughs) Smoking cigarettes, just staring off into space, just waiting for soldiers just to run into them like, like, you know, flies into a zapper. (laughs) Yeah, there was that. The American-German Freundschaft. You have to put things into context. Wars happen when things get too far out of hand. And once you're in a war... uh, you have to fight because you don't want to die. So when there's not a war, you're going to do everything you can that another war doesn't happen. That's, that's everyone's thought. And, uh, actually my timing was good. I came in the, the military in 1974. And if I would have stayed in and retired, I w- would have retired in 1994. That was a 20 year period where there were no wars. Wow. So I could have I could have done an entire military career. Well, there was never one. Been there was one. At. There was one little one, the Gulf War. Yeah, <laughs> the one that I went to <laughs> for the for the MI guys. The one that I that went to was for a war. That wasn't a war. Yeah, <laughs> not for the MI guys. Right. Uh, maybe for the Rangers or infantry or something like that. But the MI detachments that deployed to that. Uh, they were n- not in any danger. So, who do you, back to the DEH though. Who do you think? Who, who do you think was suspect at the DEH? I mean, not to cast aspersions on anybody. We're just kind of joking. Well, around. if if I had to guess, I would always say 
that guy that ran the cantina. Remember oh, the guy yeah. with the gold in the perm? Yeah, he was something, wasn't he? D- definitely. I mean, come on. Hey, everyone. <laughs> and then cleaning personnel were always highly suspect. Mm-hmm. And then there was, uh, well, the 6941st, the guard, the guards battalion, the German guards. Yeah, I forgot about those guys. Yeah, there was a they, they there was like something came out about them that they had been some of them had been informants as well. I I thought the f- most interesting guy I thought was the copy machine dude. Remember? Oh God, yes. Remember that guy? I remember that guy. What was his name? He, he, I just he's like the original one hour photo man, right? But he looked like you know that actor Christopher Waltz. He looked like Christopher Waltz, didn't he? The guy from Pulp Fiction, the German. The guy that plays the German. Yeah, actually, he's Austrian. He's Austrian, okay. Uh, but yeah, the, he had the same physique, and he took his job fucking serious. Yeah, he had. He, he would have been suspect. <laughs> you know, one time did I tell you the one time I had I had uh, like a really long report. To, he was he wanted to stay in there while I, while the thing was the copy machine was was running. He couldn't he wouldn't leave the room while you were in there. You couldn't use it. Oh, fuck no. Unless he was in there. And that machine, that right. copy machine, he just, he, the way he just kind of held that thing, it was, um, yeah, he knew everything about it, but he was the troll. I was talking to him one time. I said, you know, how did you, how, like I'd learned a little bit of German by that point. I was like, so how'd you, when did you come here? And he said, I came to Austria in 1956. I was like, where? Where? From Hungary. I was like, okay, wait a minute. You came to from Hungary to Austria in 1956, right? I mean, that was, that's crossing the, what do you call it? The Iron Curtain. So I said, how did you, how did you get to Austria? I flew in an airplane. I was like, you, you just took a commercial jet? If he goes, no, I, I flew a, a MiG fighter jet. <laughs> <laughs> he, he defected from the Hungarian army and a MiG fighter flew across <laughs> <laughs> this is during the Hungarian Revolution. Flew across into Austria and like landed. I was like, "How do you know where to land?" He, just, he goes, "You just land in an airport, a strip." He landed it, and I said, "How did you get? How did you? What did you tell them?" He said, "I just told them they could have the plane if I could stay." And uh, yeah, that's what they did. So he <laughs> turned over a. Yeah, they're not going to kick a big fighter out. We should do this again. This has been pretty fun. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a German historian who was saying who knew about the. We knew something about the the East Germans' plans and how they were going to attack Berlin. One of the things that they had was a map of all the uh, sewer the sewer system underneath West West Germany, underneath West Berlin. They had they had maps of of our area. That would make sense. Yeah. Well, I man, mean, remember we we, uh, we had that we had that house where we were digging a tunnel and and we were going to tap into the main communication line to East Germany and I, I think it was before my time and they actually did it and they actually tapped into it but the Russians knew about it of course yeah I, I imagine Berlin is just honeycombed with tunnels and I, I mean tunnels you could probably drive trucks through yeah there, there was a lot of activity going on down there so did you go back there much to Berlin at all uh, have you gotten back there no, I went back when the jock section closed. Right. That was the last section of DH. I went and got all their files and took them to Frankfurt. I was supposed to meet Klaus a few years ago. He lived, He works near Alexanderplatz now. I haven't talked. The last time I talked to him, he was here. You know, he was born like 30 kilometers from where my house is here. Oh, really? Yeah. It was kind of... That was kind of uh, when when he came here. I was trying to explain this was before navigation, before GPS, mm-hmm. and he said, "You don't need to tell me. I grew up there." I was oh, really wow. amazed. Yeah. So you're when are you moving? Uh, the 14th of February. Oh, cool. Thank you very much, Tim Timothy B. Hall. Friend. This is a footnote. Oh, go ahead. My new house, my new house that yeah. we're moving to is 20 minutes away from the old detachment in Schleswig where I used to work. 20, they had a detachment in Schleswig that was that far 
We had a listening station that far north? Yeah, we were the, there was like 100 Americans up in Flensburg with uh, missiles. Mm -hmm. And we had our listening post right outside of Schleswig. There was about 20 of us, but the rest was British Army. So 20 guys near Schleswig, how did did you live in the, did you live in in the surrounding city? Did you just stay on a little base? How How did that work? Our site? was on a right at the edge of a Bundeswehr training area where they would drive their tanks and stuff around. But the soldiers, we all lived on the economy. We all had apartments and just lived in the different communities. There was no post, no concern, nothing like that. How close was that to the East German border? Oh, pretty far. As far? So you were pretty, you were definitely into the West? But what kind of transmissions yeah, were you listening to? There we were after safe houses because Schleswig-Holstein was where all the safe houses were for everybody, for the Americans, the Brits, the French, the Soviets, because it's not so populated up there and you have so much ocean, it's easy to get people in and out by sea. So that's where all the concentrations of safe houses were. So we were we were listening to the Russians, but we were out of Augsburg, but we were also trying to pinpoint safe houses. And these were safe houses of trying to get by trying to get Russians in or trying to get people out. What were they being used for? What safe houses are used for? Uh, sometimes they're yeah, they're just safe houses. And the funny thing about safe houses is everybody knows where everybody has their safe house <laughs> and. And that's enough for them that just to know where they're at. They don't really like attack them or turn their heat off or anything. They just want to make sure they know where they're at. Like embassies or something like that. Yeah, they're kind of like, uh, they're kind of like unofficial embassies. But, you know, I have to think that in the MI world, there probably is James Bond type of stuff going on. We were just never privy to any of it. Right. I'm just trying to think, why would somebody need a safe house in Schleswig-Holstein or that, or that far north? Uh, because, uh, well, I'll tell you, you I mean, go from stop. Russia right. into Finland. You come down through Finland, Norway, Sweden. You take a ferry. Uh, you go through Denmark, and you're in North Germany. It's a very easy, if you were trying to catch someone mm-hmm. that was coming in or going out, It'd be really, really difficult because there's just so many ways of getting in and out of there. You can't control it. Access is uncontrollable. You have the East Sea, the North Sea, and I think that's what the attractive part was. And it could also be, it's just a conjecture, it could also be maybe they unofficially called that neutral territory. Mm -hmm. So did you pick up transmissions from other other units or, or other intelligence like the, I know, I know the Swedish um, were pretty were pretty successful at infiltrating uh, some of the NATO plans, like down in Bad Kreuznach, and you know with the Eighth ID, and then like in West Germany. But do you remember? You mentioned the the Polish um, having their shit together as well. I, I think we even spied on the Brits and French, to tell you the truth. But I was at such a level, I was only uh, at such a level, I would never. That wouldn't be revealed to me, but I'm sure we did it. I mean, you got to, the whole idea is you watch everybody. And if you intercept the British Army, you can't, you can act like, oh, it was an accident. Sure. <laughs> and so I think all that went on. I think everybody was watching everybody. But so, that's what keeps the peace. Yeah, it does. I just wanted, did you just record some? Uh, tra- I mean, was there times you just recorded transmissions and you had really didn't know who it was from? Yeah, there'd be times where what happens is you have a SCED, which is short for schedule. And when your ops come in, you assign people according to their abilities because you're watching military. Military's on a schedule. They have their normal SCEDs that they copy. And what you look for there is anything that's that's out of the ordinary. And when there's something out of the ordinary, then then uh, you call the analysts over and they have to take a look at it and decide what to do with it. When you're in between SCEDs, you're searching. You just, you take a, I would assign a different frequency range to the different ops and we'd cover a bandwidth 
And for sure, we would find amateur ham operators, for example, sea traffic. Sure, you would find things. And whenever, whenever you found something, you would just, they'd give it to me and I'd give it to the analyst and they would take it back to their shop and they have to determine if it was Intel worthy or not. Well, I'm at the end, we're at the end of our sked. <laughs> this is our last transmission is approaching. <laughs> did, did, was there anything you put at the end of a transmission? Like, did you ever send Morse code or were you always sort of reading it? Oh, yeah. Uh, BTAR or SK, SK Kilo. Uh-huh. God, it's funny how I just remember that stuff. What is that BKR, S-Kilo? Uh, BTAR is what the radio direction finders... When a radio mm-hmm. direction finder, a, a Morse code operator will call us up. We're actually sitting in the same room. They'll light up our board, and they'll say, I have SO7 on frequency so-and-so. We need to know if he moved. So he's copying the guy, and it was called the gun, our teletype. And I sat the gun a lot because I had a lot of experience, so I could copy code fairly well. And I would tune into the frequency, start picking up the code that the O5H, the hog, was copying. And then what I do is I send that out to my net. I have three out stations, and I, and they do the same thing. They get on the same frequency. They look for the code. They're searching for the code. And when they find a guy sending what I'm typing on the teletype, they know that's the guy, and they take a lob and send that lob back to me. And then you use that lob to triangulate? Is that what? We, we, I'd have a plotter. One of us would have to be a plotter that day, and you have your plotting board, and uh, you would triangulate it, and it would give you the map coordinates, and that's where the guy's at. And it was really accurate. Uh, we, we had some good antenna arrays. But, yeah, occasionally you find some guy that wasn't sending like a Soviet or he wasn't sending like an East German. And uh, you would just, you'd never ignore anything. The the secret of intelligence is you just collect massive amounts of it. Yeah, that seems to be the the NSA motto right now. Well, Tim, I've collected a massive amount of intelligence from you, both this past hour and 15 minutes and in the 20 or some years we've known each other. (laughs) I hope to continue... That's pretty much it. Is there anything you say at the end of a transmission? Like, how do you know the end of a transmission in Morse code? Oh, that's what I was getting to. When you, when you close out, when you when you close out that mission to your outstations, then you're no longer copying that one guy, and you close with, as a radio direction finder, the the code to close it out is BTAR, and the O5H who collects the Morse when they're ops, and this is international. They, when a Morse op is done sending, he'll he'll send SK and then Kilo, and that's into transmission. So, so right now I'm, I'm basically sending up our setting up our BTAR. I'm going to type SK Kilo. That's it. Right. So that's <laughs> this is it. Live drop with Tim Hall in Mark Valley, SK Kilo. And how would you say that in Morse code? SK. Did it did da 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 did it did.